Chumai Kroisor, welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast. I'm Stephen Hedges. We have a special bonus episode for you today. Uh, we're going to be interviewing two gentlemen who've become known, amongst themselves at least, as the two Tonys. Tony Peters and Tony Davis are long-standing volunteers with the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket. They're talking to us today about what accreditation for the museum has meant to them, their first jobs as volunteers, and some of the great cricketing stories that they've uncovered whilst being a volunteer. I began the interview by asking them how they got involved. I think I remember that Glamorgan put out an advert saying that they were looking for people who were interested in helping with some cataloging within the museum. Now, my, although I'd been retired for since about 2011, I'd been involved with the Morgan Archives and also working for the National Trust and Dufferin Gardens, uh, basically looking after collections and uh, helping down at um, Dufferin to compile an archive. So I'd had a fair bit of experience in, in, in cataloguing, you know, very much an amateur still, but I was familiar with what was needed and, and how to do it. I was one of the people that responded to Andrew's, I think it was Andrew's advert saying he was looking for people uh, to help with the cataloging. And there was a certain other person who responded at the same time. And that, that cues in the other Tony. Hence we're known as the two Tonys. Probably goes back to my father's days. And, and well, and my father, when he passed away, and then when my stepmother passed away, he left nicks and knacks, which um, might be useful in the museum. And I gave them to Andrew right at the beginning when the museum first opened in 2008. I've always really interested in the Morgan history and the opportunity to, to work in the museum. Um, I took with both hands. It was great fun. And that's when I first met my other friend called Tony. We were given about four boxes to go through, which was known as the Bill Edwards Collection, which probably <laughs> gave us a very good ground. <laughs> in it, it was a wonderful ground, it seems, <laughs> because the, the story's well known between the, the two of us. The first thing we pulled out of this box was this enormous pair of green trousers <laughs> with no clues whatsoever as to what was in it. I actually worked it out that the Bill Edwards had a an agency with, I think, with the West Indian Cricket Board, and he supplied the kit when they when they toured in the UK. Yeah. For those, for those that don't know Tony, could you could you just kind of remind me about who who Bill Edwards was? Now, B Bill Edwards was um, Mr. Welsh Cricket. I think he was known as many many years ago. He he owned the um, the sports shop in Swansea. But not only that, he was involved in club cricket. He was involved in Glamorgan cricket. Um, for a number of years, and he, he was one of the guys that really drove Welsh, the Welsh Cricket Association to the place it is now, which is now Cricket Wales. So he, he was really um, a major driver of cricket from, from West Wales, and then it's applied to the whole of Wales. He was a real personality. And I think one of the things we discovered straight away from that, Steve, was that this was a voyage of discovery because uh, most of these things were unidentified and um, it, w it was a wonderful challenge and, and a great opportunity and it's always been a lot of fun as well because you never know what's going to arrive next and actually trying to track down what it is, where it came from and also deciding how it links to Glamorgan and how we can best use it has been great fun.
I mean, the accreditation process was a very important process to us because what we realized was that we were being required to work to national standards. National standards which are recognized right across the UK in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England. I mean, obviously the standards, they're graded to the size and the situation of the museum, but they are the same national standards and therefore people uh, who see that a museum has accreditation can have some sort of confidence and security that a museum does things the right way. So by doing things the right way, it, it basically means that it's got processes and procedures in place to look after the items that are in its care. It means really that uh, it have, people can access and engage with the collection and that can be through the museum, its display cases, we've seen how digitization can improve things like that, but I think also in in recent months, we've realized how we can expand that as well by using things like the podcast and the, uh, the museum's website uh, to make material available more widely. And lastly, I think the third point is, is one that's quite frequently overlooked, but it means also that we will, they can have confidence that we will protect the collection for future generations. Now, that, that's not just about conservation and of looking after items, although that's vitally important. And one of the things we have done right the way through, we realized we needed specialist support and advice in that area. And we've had people working alongside us ever since we started this process um, who are specialists and have helped us and advised us. And that's been an education in itself. But it also means that in terms of its governance, a museum is run in the right and proper fashion and that people can have confidence that items will be safeguarded, they won't be lost, they won't be sold, they won't be passed on to others and that they will be kept and made available for future generations. So it's a package in itself. We are the only cricket museum uh, in Britain which has accreditation through the Arts Council. That sounds, Tony, like a very rigorous experience. Uh, was it like that when you were going through it? Yes, it was. It was a bit daunting to start off with, I must admit. The whole process, um, both of us absolute beginners in all this, um, and we realised that we needed a system, we needed a plan Emma Chaplin, who, who is very, very helpful. And Can you say a little bit more about Emma and her role? Yeah, Emma, Emma Chaplin was, uh, was um, appointed as, as the museum mentor some time ago, before Tony, before both of us joined. Um, and she helped Andrew in early doors to, to open the museum and then guided us through the, um, the actual accreditation process. She was very helpful. She couldn't be hands-on, but she advised us where, which, which way to go. She was great in, 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 in her contribution to our final achievement of, of the accreditation process. Having a mentor is, is a great part of the process. Someone who could point you in the right direction to best practice elsewhere was, was absolutely superb. If any museum is thinking going through accreditation and they have the opportunity of working with a mentor, I'm sure they would grab it with both hands, but just don't hesitate. Do it. So the accreditation is really a, a very strong mark of quality of what the museum does. Well, absolutely. Um, by, by, by being a fully accredited museum, we were able to apply last year for, for monies to build a purpose-built library within the museum. Previously, our, all our books were stored in the main pavilion over in Glamorgan. So um, we, we've now had installed a, a wonderful purpose-built bookshelves and display unit and transferred all the books across from the pavilion so that everything is now within within the museum and one of the real bonuses is the fact that we we have a hundred years score books of Glamorgan 
which had been hidden away in, 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 in the deep dungeons of um, Sapphire Gardens. And now they've been sent to Glamorgan Archives for restoration purposes. And by the start of next season, they will be returned to the museum and put on display. And that will um, be an amazing um, opportunity for people to do research into Glamorgan's history over the last hundred years. It's a, a unique opportunity. When we overcame the, the accreditation aspect, we, we seemed to have more time to look into the objects and, and things which were presented to the museum. And, and you're quite right, Stephen, we did actually become um, detectives in, in establishing um, where they came from, the history behind them, and, and then the whole, the whole game that we were in became far more interesting because it, we were doing a lot of research and Tony in particular because of his Glamorgan archives history. But it became a fascinating subject, looking at pictures and trying to establish who the people were, where the picture was taken. Um, it, the whole exercise became totally different and, and much more rewarding from, from looking at the objects put in front of us. We had a photograph that came in from the Chandler's family a while ago um, of a cricket team. Uh, they looked like it was a 1920s photo standing in front of the pavilion at uh, Landudno, you know, and we, otherwise there was, there was nothing in it other than we knew Jack Chandler's was in it. And we, we researched that and we realized that uh, what we actually had was a photograph of a team called the Welsh Signets, uh, who were put together around that time, um, basically by Norman, uh, by Riches, um, as a sort of uh, a feeder team through to a Welsh team that they hoped at the time might well become um, a test match team at some stage. And this was probably the first major match the Signets played. They were up in Llandudno playing um, New Zealand. So, you know, quite an opener for them. And, you know, some wonderful players in the side, including Turnbull and people like that. Do you know a little bit more about Norman Riches, Tony? We, we actually went into some detail and... and... Jane, his daughter, um, came on came on a Zoom meeting with us not so long ago, and sort of filled in some blank spaces which we were looking for. But Norman Richards was, gosh, he he played a lot of cricket. That man, he, I mean, I know he was captain of Glamorgan in 1921, in their first season in first class cricket. But previously to that, um, from from the year 1904. Gosh, he played for Cardiff, he played for the MCC, he played, uh, he played for the Signets, he played for Cardiff Alpha. I mean, the number of sides the gentleman represented was just totally amazing. And, and, and I wasn't sure when I asked Jane whether he actually did any work. Because in the, in, the, in the summer, he was non-stop cricket and he was a very, very good cricketer. I mean, he scored lots of runs, he kept wicket. He, he was an exceptional player of his age in that time. And, and well respected, and he built up a, a, um, a close-knit bunch of friends who, who um, virtually travelled the country with him playing cricket. He had a wonderful life. And he retained his links with Glamorgan long after he sort of stopped playing? Oh, indeed. I mean, I can, I, I can remember Norman um, in, the in his 90s coming to watch Glamorgan, and in fact, he was a staunch supporter of, um, of Cardiff Cricket Club. Absolutely loved his cricket. What are you both currently engaged with at the museum? We've had to spend the summer really thinking very carefully about other things that we can do. And, you know, one of the things that we, we started doing immediately was 
developing the online presence. And I think actually a lot of things have happened during the summer that wouldn't normally have happened. We would have been very much continuing with our day-to-day -day work. Um, but actually it's really provided a, an opportunity for us to sit back and think about how we can take the museum, its artifacts, the history of Glamorgan, the history really of cricket in Wales, and that's what we should be saying, of clubs throughout Wales, north, south, east and west, out to people uh, both in Wales and wider. So we've looked to develop um, the website as an opportunity and that's given us an opportunity also to write uh, articles for the website and one of the other wonderful things that's come out of it is what we're doing today one of the podcasts as well so that's where we are with the museum i think it's given us a chance to sit back reflect and actually uh, think much more widely than we were doing and I, I hope as a result of that you know that the museum will be more widely known and that its story that it tells of cricket in wales will also be more widely known steve we we are now presenting photographs on the website of cricket pavilions in wales and this this goes back to again the early 1900s and some of the photographs of these wonderful cricket pavilions are just just totally amazing tony's put together a little a little thing which is going to come out the week after next about the the pavilion which was built at um at Cardiff farmers park which was built by uh, the gibson brothers or or john gibson and which is a fascinating story about how that cricket pavilion is lucky still to be here because they set fires to it. Am I right? It was At constructed moment, in 1905. Have I got that right? It was constructed in 1904. Um, they, start, they actually started in 1904. They hoped to have it open in 1904. Um, but uh, it wasn't completed, I think, until 1905. The, the opening was when um, Dr. E.M. Grace brought his Gloucester 11 down here in June and July 1904 and unfortunately they could only use the front of the pavilion which was supposed to seat 500 people so still quite a substantial thing because the rest of the pavilion wasn't completed. Our story is from a few months later in September when um, uh, the staff were being instructed on how to use the the new stoves which were to heat the pavilion. This pavilion was quite something you know it had a press box, a score box, uh, changing rooms with slipper baths, plunge baths, uh, and it also had on the back um, a hundred foot training room and that was the deal and the deal was that the training room was for the the rugby club uh, and as a result the rugby club paid 50 percent about 1500 pounds of the three thousand um, pounds that it cost um, but our story was in september they were trying they were learning to use the stoves in, in the heating and uh, a couple of painters because they hadn't finished and also they were still doing the electric lighting so it was going to have something crowned as electric lighting um, a couple of the painters came in from outside uh, and it was a cold miserable Monday day and they decided to throw a can of oil on the stove and ignited the whole room went up in flames but unfortunately there was a plumber working behind the stove and he was completely engulfed and it was Nash the professional who was there but McIntyre the trainer from Cardiff who grabbed this guy who was called Lewis I think and dragged him outside and rolled him in the grass and managed to extinguish the flames and it was Nash inside who also managed to put out the flames as well before the, uh, the pavilion was engulfed itself. So a story that probably is not well known that the, the pavilion just about survived a near catastrophe before it was uh, fully opened. Tony Peters, I wonder if you could say the moment that you celebrated when you were looking at some of Tony's father's mementos and artefacts that he'd left to the museum. 
Well, Hayden Davis had a very long and rich and varied career and a very successful career as well. But um, we're very fortunate to have an, a number of items of Hayden's in our collection. And we were looking at one in particular about a, a year or so ago, which was a tankard. Now, the initial story was that this was in a tankard which presented to all members of the Glamorgan team in July 1953 when they beat Yorkshire on the very first occasion. And that was quite a significant champagne moment in cricket terms in itself because it was the first time that uh, Glamorgan had beaten Yorkshire. But it also meant that Glamorgan, since um, gaining county status in 1921, had now beaten every other county and therefore the team were were presented with um, a tankard and also a champagne moment in the sense that the supporters presented the team itself with three magnums of champagne, which must have probably gone down very well after the match. But what we noticed looking at this was that there was another little moment within the game that was also a bit of a landmark and a huge landmark that perhaps wasn't always recognised because it was during that game, Hayden Davis took his 500th first-class victim and that was something in itself. And it was taken at a crucial time of the game. Glamorgan were defending a very slim uh, first innings lead. And on, on the evening, I think, of the second day, uh, Jim McConnell was bowling. But he was doing quite well. He took five wickets fairly quickly and actually put Glamorgan in a position to win the game. And it was Tony's dad behind the, the stumps who was whipping off most of uh, these wickets. And the man who came in at that time was, was quite a, a significant figure in, in, in cricket. It was a young Raymond Illingworth. And a young Raymond Illingworth who was in his first full season with Yorkshire. Um, and was already making a mark. He scored 146 not out against Essex at Hull only about a month or so before. And uh, was doing great things with both the, the ball and the bat. And uh, Nomad in the Western Mail described um, Hayden Davis whipping the bales off and having him stumped first ball off McConnon. And it, that was the moment when, you know, he had his 500th wicket. And that was just one moment, I suppose, in many moments in, in Hayden's career. But it was also a great moment in that game as well. And he went on to take two more wickets, I think, that day as well. And it's, the interest in that was, well, here's an item that which on face value comes into the museum and you think, well, that's, 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 that's something quite important. That's, we've got that nailed and we should put it on display and we should make something of it. And then when you delve a little deeper, you find something else and you think, well, actually, that is beautiful as well. And that really does link with the material that we've already got on Hayden Davis. And, it really, you know, and that's another magical moment that we can collect and make available through our collection to other people in Wales and beyond. Tony Davis, did, did uh, your father enjoy sort of reflecting on, on successes and moments in his career? Um, my father was, was very laid back about his cricketing career. He told some very amusing stories about pre-war, post-war cricket, very much different to, to the modern day because you're playing on uncovered wickets, you're playing three-day three -day cricket, you're playing 32 county games a season and it was a different it was a different life he he was he was very reflective in his later years on the fun that he had playing for glamorgan and the people that he met and, and was he partial to an odd glass of champagne i i, I think i think he was yes <laughs> the the story the story which uh, um i mean tony is eloquently told about the tankard and um, I actually found the tankard in, in, the, in the attic at home here, um, having forgotten all about it. It had been up there for 20 or 30 years. And I, I honestly thought the tankard was given to him because it was the first time that Glamorgan had 
had beaten had beaten Yorkshire. Um, I didn't realise the full impact and the consequences of that of that particular trophy. So when the story unfolded, it was it was good, wasn't it? A, re and a really nice story. Another item which celebrates, I think, um, a fantastic career. I think, as we said before, four hundred twenty-three matches. 6,600 runs and 585 catches, 204 stumpings. One of the greatest wicket keepers never to have played for England. Very unfortunate to be uh, keeping at the same time as Godfrey Evans. He did, he did actually have a test trial in, in the late 40s um, yeah. where, they, where they actually looked at Evans and Davis, who was going to play. Uh, Evans, Evans, Evans won the vote. <laughs> <laughs> I can't quote off the top of my head, but stumpings is often a clear sign of a great uh, wicketkeeper, the number of stumping victims that they got. So over 200 yes. sounds like a, a, a huge amount to me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Say, I mean, is it right, Tony, that, you know, he, he was a sort of, um, for a big bloke, he, he was very light on his feet. He was exceptionally light on his feet. Professional squash player. He could move very quickly on, off either foot, and his leg side stumpings are legends. Apparently, I, I, sadly, I, I never um, saw many of them, but um, they talk about them. Well, the old, the older generation still talk about the, the leg side stumpings. He became known as the Panda. It was his nickname. Um, he played an extraordinary amount of cricket, non-stop. I think he played in about 600 consecutive first-class games, which for a wicketkeeper, without breaking any fingers or anything, was just astonishing. He held a, a major record with stumpings and catches and was very instrumental in, in, the, 40, in the 48 side when, when they won the championship with the close fielding, which was renowned by all the counties. He loved his cricket. I used to go along to, to, to Swansea to what I can remember quite clearly, sitting on the balcony watching, watching him play at Swansea and at Cardiff. Yes, wonderful days, a long time ago. And I, I think there would probably, probably be many, many Glamorgan supporters who would want to thank your father for being instrumental in persuading Don Shepherd to change from his quick bowling to his uh, his off cutters that did did so much damage over the years for Glamorgan. Indeed, I mean, uh, Don Don Arrow said to me, "If it wasn't for your father, I wouldn't have taken all his wickets." Um, the fact that um, he he was a very useful quick bowler, a very useful quick bowler, but he. He was persuaded by my father and others in, in, behind the wicket to, to, to develop this, um, this off-break, this fast off-break, which uh, on the wickets in those days, bearing in mind that we're talking now um, uncovered wickets, um, he became lethal on them and, uh, what, 2,000 wickets and it's just an amazing story, isn't it? And, and poor old Donnie never played for England. He, she should have walked into the English team. He was special. Ah! You talk about what we're doing in the museum at the moment. Um, I mean, we do have some sad things to, to do, unfortunately, now and again. And, and one of them is that poor Peter Walker passed away recently. And we have been given all his cricket equipment to look at. And his, apparently his, 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 he has a museum within his house of books and photographs and scrapbooks. So um, it's our duty now to go down there and, and, and have a look and transport that back to the museum in Cardiff. 
it's clear, gents, that you have a great love and affinity for the game. The link that we have with the past is through people. And so presumably you'd like to send a message to the people who still play in the clubs throughout Wales that their history is important to the museum and you'd like people to get in touch? Oh, very much so. No, absolutely. Exactly. Um, we're very keen that I think that clubs um, from across Wales have the opportunity to draw together their own materials and their heritage to share it with us and for all of us to share it with others across Wales. Um, that's why we started doing uh, features such as the pavilions and the grounds. That's why we very much hope we're great and we very much hope clubs will participate. Clubs of every size will participate in the podcast because I think there's a real opportunity to use the media uh, for us all to gather together the messages about cricket in Wales and to, and to, and to make it more widely available. We are the Welsh Museum of Cricket, not just Glamorgan. And my ambition has always been to involve as many clubs in Wales as possible um, with photographs of, the, of their grounds, stories, I mean, some of the stories which um, I'm sure these clubs have got, artefacts which they may have in the pavilions, um, these are all things which could develop the history of cricket in Wales, which I think um, would make it fascinating, uh, make our museum even more fascinating than it is now. Both, both Tony and myself um, have become good friends and we, and we, and we actually go to county games um, in other parts of the country. We've been to Lords. Uh, we've been to Worcester, um, we've, been to, we've been to the Oval, and I think it would be fair to say that um, despite the history which they have at Lord's, um, the, the museum in Cardiff has more feel about what's going on in, in history terms. Um, we haven't got the artefacts of MCC jerseys and dotted all over the place or Australian things, but we're talking about Wales now, and I think if we can build up a bigger history of, of Wales as a cricket nation, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, we've, we've had the opportunity, as, as Paul Museum, as Tony says, to also meet people from uh, in a similar situation with other museums in the other counties right across the country. And we've learned a lot from them. You know, I mean, I, I think we particularly we've had some very good meetings with our you know, colleagues uh, Dave Griffin in Derbyshire recently, who taught us an awful lot about how get how to get involved with local clubs and how to tackle it and whatever. But I think it's also made us appreciate just how good the museum is in Wales. You know, we, we've got a pretty good pace here ourselves. He's also got me into some terrible habits as well. I'd, uh, I'd I hadn't been down the last time I'd been to Worcester. I think he and Bolton was playing, and we went we went there last year because. Uh, persuaded me that they had at tea time in the afternoon the best cake selection anywhere in the country indeed the ladies pavilion right. the, lady, the cakes in the ladies pavilion that afternoon when the morgan played worcester last september were truly spectacular a real feast we had a good time but not but 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 to, to tap it all we were both invited into the um into the main committee room at lords and we had chocolate cake we had chocolate cake in the main committee room at Lord's. Nobody, nobody goes into that room unless, unless you've got the egg tie on and, and I think he played for, played for England 20 times or 30 times. I mean, we were honoured to go in there, weren't we? Um, 
I think that, I think that was the Tony Davis connection, or it was certainly the, the Tony Davis pattern that got us into there. It wasn't me. I was as amazed as anybody else when the guy in the uh, the white blazer, or whoever it was, came out and shook us in. <laughs> Were you allowed to eat the cake with your hands, or did you have to use a, a fork? Uh, we had a fork, yeah. but it was it was a messy chocolate cake. There was a, there was a lot of cake as well. Yeah, it was one of those typical <laughs> days when. Uh, Morgan were, were playing Middlesex and uh, there was more rain than there was play, but uh, it was still quite an experience. Many thanks to the two Tonys for chatting to us. If you have a cricketing photograph, artefact or memento that you think the museum might be interested in, you can contact Dr Andrew Hignall, the Chief Archivist, at museum at glamorgancricket.co.uk. You can see the museum's work on their website, at www.glamorgancricketarchive.com. If you prefer to contact ourselves through the podcast, we can be found on Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Our Facebook page is found under CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket. And our email, if you want it, is mwcpod1921 at gmail.com. Hope you've enjoyed the special bonus episode today. Do keep listening for some more great stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. <laughs>